Jesus told some guys to go get a donkey. What we don't know, reading that story this many years later, living in a different culture, living in a different historical moment, removed from that moment in time, we don't realize that that was an inflammatory thing that he told them to do. We don't realize that was a provocative thing that he told them to do because Jesus and his followers and all the people of Jerusalem were steeped in their ancient texts and they knew what their ancient texts said. They had read the writings of their prophet, Zechariah, who said this, Look, Israel, he had said, Your king is coming, and he's going to set things right. But he's not the king that you expect. Because your king is going to set things right in humility, not in ostentation. Your king comes on a donkey. He arrives on a pack animal. But even so, his will be a power that overcomes the machines of war. And his will be the power of peace, and his will be a kingdom of peace. And Jesus knew that ancient text, and the people of Jerusalem knew that ancient text. And so, playing to the messianic expectations that the people had, here comes Jesus, intentionally provoking the religious power structure, intentionally tendering his messianic credentials. And the people understood what, he's, what he was doing, and the people accepted his resume because they did what people did in royal processions of the day. They threw down branches in the path. They threw down their cloaks in the path. Past. That's what you do for a royal procession. And they erupted with calls of Hoshia Na. That's transliterated Hosanna. It means save us. It means be for us what a Messiah is supposed to be. It means be for us the one who saves us because we're struggling here under Roman oppression. We're struggling under the double taxation. We're struggling under all the resources of our agricultural processes being stripped away and chipped off to Rome, and we're barely making it as sharecroppers here. Be the one who saves us from the tyranny of this Roman oppression. Be the one who takes us back to the good times that we once had when David was king, when he kicked out all these foreign interlopers, when he knocked away all of this foreign oppression. And the shouts in the story continue. You come in God's name. Well, of course, that's what messiahs do. You are an agent of God. Well, that's what messiahs do. They had a clear understanding in their shouts. You have come to bring God's salvation to us finally. Thank heaven. Thank God. Now, what we don't intuitively pick up reading this story in a different culture the different time in history is that Palm Sunday was actually a political confrontation kind of event. Palm Sunday was actually a social upheaval kind of event. It was revolutionary. It was an iconoclastic event. We're throwing down all of the accepted norms. It was a rally the troop kind of event. Now, if you had a Palm Sunday tradition or a Palm Sunday celebration, it was probably a happy one. 
Most churches, like ours, do something for the kids. Maybe you grew up with a Palm Sunday pageant, children waving the branches. For many, there were candles and there was special music. For many, there was a parade through the church or through the neighborhood, sometimes carrying a statue. If you grew up in Latvia, your Palm Sunday tradition would have been for your parents to come in at the crack of dawn and wake you up with pussy willows. Now, I'm not exactly sure what a pussy willow is, but I can't imagine how that was a wonderful event, but they seemed to like it. (laughs) In Finland, Palm Sunday was more like Halloween. It was kids knocking on doors and getting candy. And then there was always holy water being splashed around on the branches, on the people, on the parade. That's fun. And in most traditions, there was some kind of a special food. For some, it was boiled eggs. For others, it was special cakes. Because we tend to commemorate Palm Sunday as a fun day. And that's understandable because when you read the story, it sounds fun. There's a long deferred desire. And now there is celebration in the street that that desire would be fulfilled. It's the people being happy because it was a hopeful day. It was a day of celebration, a day of energy, a day of excitement and promise. It was a day with the potential to believe that anything could happen. And so that story evokes happiness. It's kind of like the feelings we would get in our own culture, in our own society uh, on election night. These are days in which we have great anticipation for our nation, great hope for our nation. Our side won, woo-hoo, yes, there is work to do, but we had a competition of ideas, our ideas won, and today things are going to get better. And now we make promises all around that we will work hand-in-hand with the opposition because even though we have different ideas about what is good for the nation, we all want what is good for the nation, so we're in this thing together. And so on election night, there is optimism in the air. Expectation is flowing like a fountain of hope, and things are turning around. Things are getting better. Now, only half of the people in our society have that kind of experience on election night. The other half are crushingly disappointed. But imagine if you had that experience and your side won, to help you get a perspective on a little glimpse into the emotion that Jerusalem was feeling on Palm Sunday. Only they weren't just experiencing it in a two- or four-year cycle of elections. They were experiencing the longing for their nation to be freed from enslavement that had oppressed them for decades and decades and decades and decades. And before that, centuries and centuries and centuries of other oppressors, other interlopers. So on Palm Sunday, they were celebrating Jesus as God's promise agent of deliverance from their long years of suffering. But Palm Sunday initiates a week. In our tradition, we celebrate it, we call it Holy Week. And during Holy Week, come around Thursday, we're going to hit Monday, Thursday. And Monday, Thursday is the day that we remember the last dinner that Jesus had with his friends. We remember the solemnity of foot washing and the words of sorrow, the sadness, and we remember the betrayal. And then we're going to hit Good Friday this week, a day of deep despair. This week we honor part of the human experience, the crushed hope part of being human, the dashed dreams part of being human. If we look forward to the week that is initiated by Palm Sunday, perhaps our celebrations wouldn't be happy. Perhaps our celebrations would be different. 
Maybe they would evoke feelings of wariness, the feelings people have when they think it's going to go badly. Easter is coming, that is true, but this week we remember crushing disappointment. We remember the feelings that people have when their anticipation is high, 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 only to have them flattened yet again. Because after those decades of hoping for a Messiah to deliver them from Rome, after hoping against hope that this one, this Messiah, because there had been several who had come before when there were actually several who came after Jesus, hoping against hope this Messiah would be the one who finally kicks out Rome, who finally puts us on the path of self-determination and freedom, deliverance from our enemies, only to have those hopes snuffed out and those dreams crushed. If we were to celebrate Palm Sunday as Palm Sunday happened, maybe we would call it Don't Get Your Hopes Up Sunday. Or maybe we would call Despair Will Come Tomorrow Sunday. Because Good Friday comes this week. And that is not what the people in in the streets had in mind for Jesus. His followers who had been with him three years, this is not what they had in mind when they were dancing in the streets that day. Looking back, Palm Sunday was a ripoff in their minds. It was a day to regret, not to celebrate. It was a day of overwhelming betrayal and abandonment. We thought liberation was at hand, but instead our hope was extinguished. We had ideas. We had plans. You heard the reading earlier. We have a history that informs those expectations. We've read the ancient texts. Jesus was going to fulfill the promises we read in those texts. Jesus was going to restore the good times like when David was king. We were going to be back on top of the heap, no longer at the bottom of the heap. This week was not what we had in mind. It's a bad week coming up. Desolation is coming. Hopelessness is coming, misery and anguish. It's a bad week that's coming up. And all of the hopefulness of Palm Sunday, all that really does is just highlight how bad a week it really is. It just sets us up to hope and to dream and to celebrate. What a ripoff. That's what we could call it. We could call it Ripoff Sunday. But we, on this side of history, we have an advantage. We know how the story goes. We know that the story doesn't stop at Good Friday. We know that the story goes on to next Sunday, Easter Sunday. We know that this really bad week wasn't made bad by how it turned out. This really bad week was made bad by the expectations that we had pinned on it. The expectations people had about how things would go, the expectations that people had for how things should go, that's what was crushed. People, for very good reasons, had assumed that Messiah meant the end of Rome. People, for very good reason, had assumed that Messiah meant the return of geopolitical freedom. People, for very good reasons, thought that God's salvation would put their nation back on top 
and put the other nations back in their place where they belonged. And that's not what happened. Their expectations were not met. Because it turns out we now have the advantage of knowing in hindsight, that's not what salvation meant. What salvation meant wasn't even on their radar. We on this side of history, we understand it. We did a whole lesson at the beginning of last year. We experienced the divine. The experience changes us. We in turn change the world. We understand what salvation means. We are transformed by the experience of the divine life and then we take that interior transformation into the world that we are creating each day. That version of salvation wasn't on anybody's radar at the time. Their expectations were what created their crushing disappointment. So when Good Friday came, nobody saw it for what it was. All they saw was, damn, it happened again. All they saw was, I will never get my hopes up again. So from one perspective, Palm Sunday ought to be called Crushing Disappointment is Coming Sunday. But from another perspective, it ought to be called Upending All of Our Expectations Sunday. For the first few centuries of the Christian tradition, the dominant symbol that we used was not the cross. The dominant symbol that we used was the phoenix. The phoenix is the story of the bird who obtains new life by rising out of the ashes of the predecessor self that was burned in flame. And the Christians understood that that idea that new life comes out of the burning of the old was the centerpiece of their tradition. They understood this as the centerpiece of their experience of Jesus, that death is swallowed up in a new way of being alive. Death to our bodies is not the final word. Death is not the end of the story. Burning flame, yes, that's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. Crushed hopes and burned dreams, devastating disappointment, these are not the final word. And they begin to see this as a pattern. And it was a pattern that they saw everywhere that they looked. So they chose this as their symbol. They saw it in the life of Jesus during Holy Week. Death is not the final word. They saw what Paul said. Jesus was the firstborn of many. So what happened to him during Holy Week is what we all experience in some dimension. There is something bigger and something deeper and something more real than the reductionist version of the reality we typically live in. And that deeper reality is the final word, not this narrowed reality. So life from death, they saw, is a pattern one that we see wherever we look. We actually see it on our own spiritual journeys. We talk a lot in our community about the false self. We, when we celebrate the false self, in many ways are mimicking what was being celebrated on Palm Sunday, a truth that is not true that we have pinned our hopes on. The false self makes a great promise that it cannot sustain. You heard earlier, George, talk about the false self as the consummate deal maker. It's what we do. 
We make a deal with the universe as soon as we come to consciousness. I am going to be this way. I am going to live this way. I'm going to do these kinds of things. We usually pick something that's part of our natural personality. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be cunning. I'm going to be powerful. I'm going to be compassionate. And in exchange, by doing this thing that I have chosen as the deal that I'm making with the universe, good things are going to happen for me. I will be rewarded by getting the life that I want. We create an if-then scenario. If I do this, then this will happen. If I do X, Y, Z, then people will love me, or people will respect me, or people will fear me, whatever it is that is important to us. If I do this, then this will happen. If I live ABC way, then life is going to line up for me. The false self is the consummate deal-maker. I'll do all the right things. Maybe it's the things that my culture tells me to do. I'll work hard, I'll get ahead, I'll get a job, I'll get a good degree, I'll do all the things that I need to do. And when I do all the stuff that the culture tells me to, that's the deal I'll make. Or maybe I'll make a different deal and I'll strike out on my own and I will follow the road less traveled. And I won't live the way that my culture tells me to do. I will live this way and that way and that way. But in exchange... The world will line up for me. If I do this, then this will happen. I'll get the stuff from life that I want to get. To which our tradition speaks when it tells the story of Palm Sunday. And it says, yeah, good luck with that. It may not go the way you think it will go. And this is especially true in our religious lives. Religion is one of the great sources from which we draw strength to bolster the false self. Because now instead of just making a deal with the universe, with the way things are, we're making our deal with God. I have learned what God wants of me, the preacher told me. And I'm doing the stuff. Now depending upon which preacher you were listening to, I've been devout in the reading of my holy texts. I've been sacrificial in my piety and my prayer and my devotion. I've been selfless in service to those who are in need. Look, God, I'm doing the stuff. And I'm pretty sure I can count on you now to reciprocate and give me the life that I want. To which our tradition on Palm Sunday speaks again and says, yeah, well, good luck with that too. It may not go the way that you think it will go. Whether our false self uses a religious tool to make the deal, a religious currency for making our exchange, or whether it uses hard work will get you ahead economic currency, or whether it uses clever enough to outwit other people currency, doesn't matter what the currency is that we use to make the deal. Our tradition tells us in the end, the deal's going to fall through. In the end, the deal falls through. And so when we experience the broken deal, like they experienced on Palm Sunday, sometimes we call it the dark night of the soul. When we experience the broken deal, which is a ubiquitous, universal experience, when we experience the broken deal, sometimes we call it the wilderness, or we call it the unraveling. Sometimes we call it, curse God and die, I'm not doing this anymore. Sometimes we call it, I guess spirituality isn't what I thought it was. I'll just go make some money. And the failure of the deal is for us an inevitability. 
And if the failure of the deal was the final word, well then yes, life pretty much sucks. If the failure of the deal was all that there was and every one of us experienced it sometime in life, then it is a life we wonder if it's worth living. But the tradition has spoken to us in the moments of our crushing disappointment and has again and again invited us to stand back from it. The tradition has spoken to us again and again to, in the midst of our pain and in the midst of our suffering, to stand back from it, to stand back from the sorrows of life, to stand back from the afflictions of life, and to ask ourselves this core question, what in that experience is dying? What is it that is being offered to be resurrected on the other side of this burning experience? We call it the false self that dies, and we call it the true self that is born. Or to use more traditional language, we call it the life of the flesh that turns out to be inadequate, and it dies, and we call it the life of the spirit that is awakened in us. Or we call it the old life and then the awakening of the new life. Or death to the worldly life and awakening to eternal life. We have all kinds of language that we've used through the years. But the essence is this. There is a reality that is deeper and truer and more real. And the spiritual life is a long journey to experience that deeper reality and to experience it more deeply and more deeply and more deeply with every year that passes. But it is a basic truism. To experience the new life, the old has to die. To experience a new truth, the old truth has to be abandoned. To experience a new real, the old version of real has to die. It has to fall away. It has to be burned. And so, Palm Sunday is an invitation that says, take the suffering horrors of life and just factor them in. Plan for them. Factor in that life is going to include days of death. Factor in that life is going to include days of crushed hopes and crushed dreams. Factor in that these kinds of days are going to come. And when they come, go on high alert. When the days come that are crushing, when the Palm Sundays of your life come, go on high alert and ask yourself what is being invited to die here. What false dream, what faulty expectation, what untrue truth, what is being invited to die here? Here's what the message of Palm Sunday could be. It could be this. Suffering in life is inevitable, so make it your friend. Suffering in life is inevitable, so make it your friend. When it comes, go on high alert. Seek out what is it that's being invited to die? What is it that needs to die? Be suspect of the deals that you've made with the universe. If I do this, then this is going to go well for me. Be suspect of the deals that you've made with God. 
Wonder out loud with your spiritual friends. Do I believe this thing that I believe is true? Is it true? This thing that I hold as sacred, is it sacred? What do I cherish as essential that might not be essential? And not only in your conversation with your spiritual friends, but in your quiet moments of prayer. Ask the Spirit of God that indwells each one of us for insight into what is dying and what could be resurrected. My son is navigating his way into the grown-up adult world, and it's kind of fun to watch. But as he's going through some of the pains that come with growing up, having to grapple with so much to do and not enough time to do it as he's trying to finish up his degree and he's trying to help his new wife from Columbia to get her immigration papers and as he's trying to keep a job and as he's trying to figure out transportation when they don't have all their transportation needs taken care of. There's often too much to do and not enough time to do it. There's not often too many demands and not enough money to meet them and there's the pain of love because now what happens if this woman that he's come to love so deeply now could die tomorrow and danger could happen in the world. And so all this new adult stuff has come upon him. And I love my son and I would love to save him from life's troubles, but I've been around this thing long enough to know that it just doesn't work that way. So instead, I simply try my best to stand with him while he goes through the pains of being in this world. But that doesn't mean that I don't try and share with him what I've learned along the way. (laughs) My son is not particularly given to religious language. He uh, would prefer if we stripped away all of the organized religion trappings, but he is at the core a deeply spiritual man. So I don't tell him where the texts come from when I quote them to him. (laughs) (laughs) So I said to him Psalm 30 without ever telling him it was the psalm. I just called it a poet once wrote. (laughs) And I said, sorrow and weeping come, quoting Psalm 30. And Daniel, there's nothing you can do about it. They just come. Often they come in the night hours, and there's not a thing you can do about it. And the thing is, sorrows will come today, and they'll be back tomorrow. Because life is difficult. Life is struggle, and life is painful. Sorrow and weeping, they come. The psalmist said, they just do. But, I told him, the ancient wisdom tells us that that is true, but it's not the whole story. Because right after that, it goes on to say that joy also comes. It just does. Joy comes. Just like sorrow and suffering come, joy comes. Often in the morning, it says. Life is not only difficult, It is also beautiful. Life is a struggle, but it's not only a struggle. It's also peaceful. Life is painful, but it's not only painful. It's also pleasurable. And that's just life, and you can't choose a pain-free life. You cannot choose a struggle-free life. That is not one of the options available when you come into this earth. But what you can do, I told him, is during the suffering times, during the hard times, you can't be on alert. You can't be asking yourself, what is dying here? What is being killed here? 
What of my false self? What of my false belief? What of my false truth is being invited into death? And what dimension of a deeper truth, a deeper life, is trying to emerge into resurrection? What do I believe that is not worthy of my belief? What is false within me that is not worthy of the word self? And so I quoted to him what I often say, pain is not bad, pain is just painful. Crushing is not bad, crushing is just crushing. Disappointment is not bad, disappointment is just disappointing. And the point of these painful, crushing, disappointing times is to extract from them what they offer us. The point of pain, I told him, is not to get out of pain. The point of pain is to get out of pain what we need to get out of pain. Because Palm Sundays come in our lives. Good Fridays come in our lives. Suffering comes in our lives. And they can embitter us, and they can crush us, and they can disappoint us, and be done. Or... They can invite us into high alert. What's going on here? What is the Spirit of God that indwells me deeply doing? What is going on? What is, what is it that I need to extract from this painful experience? And so my prayer for us this Palm Sunday, this Holy Week, this Good Friday, is that we would, in the midst of our difficult times, look to our heritage to say, That's not the final word. And ask ourselves, what is the always present work of the Holy Spirit doing within us? Even, and especially, on the days of crushing disappointment. May that be so in us. May that be so among us. Spirit of God, may we be alive to the indwelling Spirit on the days that are pleasurable and on the days that are painful. Be that so in and among us, Lord, in Jesus' name.